Some 16 centuries ago, that great father, doctor of the church, Pope St. Leo the Great said, quote, Pentecost holds within it great mysteries, wherein it is most clearly revealed to us that the sacred rites of the Old Testament had served as the foundations for the gospel. Close quote, St. Leo the Great. Pentecost clearly reveals to us the sacred rites of the Old Testament served as foundations for the gospel. What does this mean? How does Pentecost clearly reveal to us that the old rites and the Old Testament were foundations for the gospel? In order to understand this, we'll back up and spend a few minutes considering what happened in three places. The Garden of Eden, Babel, Mount Sinai. Then we'll take a quick look at some aspects of Old Testament worship and then apply what we've seen there to Pentecost and to what we're doing here today. Garden of Eden. We need to always remember that everything we do here, whatever we do here, all of it, is related in some way to the Garden of Eden. We'll never understand our holy religion. In fact, it is impossible to understand our holy religion without keeping that in mind. So everything we do is somehow related to the Garden of Eden. Now, Eden, paradise, means a hedged-in garden. Moses tells us that in the beginning, before the garden was destroyed in the Great Flood, there were four great rivers that flowed out of the Garden of Eden. Since Eden was hedged in, and since rivers, generally speaking, flow downhill, that tells us something. It tells us the Garden of Eden is an enclosed sanctuary set on top of a mountain. It's the very threshold of heaven. It's the place where man could live in the intimate presence of God. But that relationship with God was based on obedience. Adam was assigned as God's steward to keep the garden, not to lounge around and clown about without any responsibilities. The privilege of living in God's presence was based on responsible obedience. If man disobeyed, he'd be punished with death. If man disobeyed, the whole natural order would be disrupted. If man disobeyed, childbearing would become painful. If man disobeyed, work would become difficult and tiring. If man disobeyed, he'd be driven away from the privilege of living in God's presence, and he would no longer be able to live in that beautiful sanctuary on the mountaintop out of which flowed rivers of water. You don't need me to tell you that man disobeyed. And all these disasters fell upon him. And he was driven out, and Eden was closed to him. Man was no longer holy. The holy place where he once walked with God was veiled. He no longer had any access to it. And God placed cherubim in a flaming sword that was turning every way in order to keep anyone from entering the garden and approaching the tree of life. What lessons can we draw from Eden? In the Garden of Eden, we see a prototype of the conditions and environment in which man can safely encounter God. For example, we're introduced to the idea that separation is an essential aspect of holiness. There are degrees of holiness. Time has different levels of holiness. The Sabbath is more holy than the other days of the week. It's been set aside for God. Space has different levels of holiness. The sanctuary of the garden on the mountaintop 
is holier than the outside. Things have different degrees of holiness. The tree of life is holier than the other trees in the garden. People have different degrees of holiness. There's no comparison between Adam's holiness before he fell and afterwards. So the key notion is holiness is determined by the degree to which something has been set aside for and dedicated to God. We see a basic pattern in the Garden of Eden. Adam was given a command to guard and keep the first sanctuary on earth, the Garden of Eden. He disobeyed, and he and all his descendants were driven out. The basic principle here is the closer that man approaches to the ineffably holy presence of Almighty God, the more his accountability increases and the stricter his punishments become for any infractions. We see a basic temptation in Eden, the idea of self-determination. I'll do what I want. The lie of the serpent was that men could become as gods, deciding what was good and evil. But in spite of the devil's lies, man remains a creature. And as a creature, he's bound to obey the law of his creator. In other words, man is bound to do what God wants, and man can only have a true, authentic relation with God in that basis, by carefully keeping divine law. Tower of Babel. Babel is located down on the plains of Senar, out of the mountains, down in the realm of fallen man. Scripture quotes the men of Babel saying, let us make a city in a tower, the top whereof may reach to heaven, and let us make our name famous. Notice in their pride they weren't going to use any natural uh, materials either, like wood or stone. Instead, let us make bricks and let us bake them with fire. And what were they trying to do? They're trying to build a man-made mountain, build their own mountain, exalt their own name rather than the name of God. They were going to come to God on their own terms. The Jewish historian Josephus, writing the first century, described the sin of Babel, pointing out that, quote, Nimrod persuaded men to believe that it was not because of God, but rather it was their own courage which gave them happiness. Nimrod said that if God should have a mind to drown the world again, he would build a tower too high for the waters to be able to reach, and that he would avenge himself on God for destroying their forefathers. Now the multitude were very ready to follow Nimrod and to consider it cowardly to submit to God. When God saw that they acted so madly, he caused a tumult among them by producing them diverse languages so that they should not be able to understand one another. Close quote, Flavius Josephus. Obviously, then, these men are a law unto themselves deciding what is good and evil. But, of course, man is made to know and love and serve God, not himself, since God and God alone is worthy of glory. So, although the men of Babel are united in a common cause, it's a cause of self-fulfillment, a cause of self-esteem. It's a union of evil. It's a choir of voices shouting, we will not serve, we will do it our way. So Babel stands for the total inversion of reality. We will dictate liturgical relationships to God. We will set ourselves apart from his law. We will ascend. We will be a law unto ourselves. We will exalt our name. And although men are bonded in unity, precisely because in this case it's a unity of secular humanism, we can almost hear God's sighs. He says, quote, Behold, it is one people, and all have one tongue, and they've begun to do this. Let us go down and there confound their tongue, that they may not understand one another's speech. 
Close quote. So the Tower of Babel teaches us clearly that sin not only leads to further separation from God, but even from each other. There's an important symmetry here again. Holiness, obedience, and closeness to God all go together, and they're opposed to sinfulness, rebellion, and distance from God and one another. Mount Sinai. Fifty days after Israel passed through the Red Sea, Moses goes up into the cloud on Mount Sinai. Why a cloud? Remember that since the fall of Adam, man couldn't walk freely in the presence of the Lord. So why a cloud? According to the ancient tradition, this cloud veiled the Lord, so it protected Moses and made it possible for him to enter into God's presence without being killed. And so Moses goes into the cloud and receives the Ten Commandments. The whole time, the mountain's smoking, it's shaking with earthquakes, there's flames and bolts of lightning and the roar of thunder and the blare of trumpets and whirlwinds and storms as he's up there. While all that's going on, the people rise up and commit idolatry. Now, it's important to picture that scene. Right in front of them is this huge mountain. It's smoking. It's covered with a cloud. There's flames, lightning, and thunder, and the angels blasting on trumpets and whirlwinds, and they rise up in sin, set up an idol right in God's face, and refuse to serve him. It's right in his face. And when Moses comes down and says, if any man be on the Lord's side, let him join me, then the tribe of Levi took their swords and killed the rebellious idolaters. There's thousands. They killed thousands. Because of their obedience, because they, they put their love for the will of God before their love for their own flesh and blood, God set aside the priestly tribe of Levi to be his priests, the whole tribe, because they served him by killing their neighbors that were idolatries. At Mount Sinai, we see that the law, the word of God carved on stone tablets, is handed down from God to man on a mountaintop, an elevated sanctuary. In destruction of the sinners by the swords of the Levites, we see again that the closer man approaches to the ineffably holy presence of the Almighty God, the more his accountability increases and the stricter his punishments become for any infractions. In the selection of the Levites as the priestly tribe, we again see the key notion that obedience to God's will leads to holiness, and holiness means being set farther apart from profane use and dedicated to God. Okay, remember, we're trying to understand what Pope St. Leo the Great meant when he said that Pentecost clearly reveals to us that the sacred rites of the Old Testament served as foundations for the gospel. So now we've taken a brief look at Eden, at Babel and Mount Sinai. We have enough background information to take a brief look at some aspects of the Old Testament worship, and then we'll tie that to Pentecost and today. Worship in the tabernacle and the temple. The true worship of Old Testament times was handed down on Mount Sinai directly to Moses, to God, who dictated even the very smallest details of all the religious ceremonies and how they were to be performed. For example, in the Torah, which is also called the Law or the Pentateuch, that's the first five books of the Bible that are written by Moses, there are a whole list of infractions which God told Moses were offenses against his holiness. For example, the Lord tells Aaron, he's the high priest, the Lord tells Aaron that he or his sons must not drink any intoxicating drinks before going in to serve, and he tells them they must be properly clothed. The punishment for either offense is death. Now, did God mean that? Would God really kill Aaron or one of his sons for going into the holy place drunk or for not wearing the proper clothing? You better believe it. 
just before this warning about drinking, he had struck dead two of Aaron's sons for liturgical abuse. God means what he says. He isn't going to get a new idea. He already knows it all. He doesn't need our advice. And if he says something, that's just flat, plain, cut and dry. It's the way it is. That was a divine punishment for liturgical abuse in the olden days. Now, if you think that we priests of the New Covenant will get away off any easier, think again. The tent-like church Israel used before they built the temple was called the tabernacle. It was designed by God, and as we've seen, it was guarded and served by the men from the priestly tribe of Levi. The Holy of Holies was this most sacred place of the tabernacle, and later on of the temple, which is a permanent structure with the same basic pattern as the tabernacle built on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. Inside the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant, which, until the temple was built, traveled with Israel. Now, the Ark is a wooden box covered, completely covered with gold, built to exact specifications given by God. It contained a number of items, including the two tablets containing the Word of God, Ten Commandments, carved in stone by God himself, contained a jar full of manna, which is that bread that fell from heaven. The ark had a golden lid with two cherubim on top of it. The lid was called the mercy seat, over which the glory cloud of the Lord would appear and hover over that. That's the Old Testament equivalent of the Old Testament foreshadowing of the real presence. The ark was so holy that it couldn't even be touched. It could only be carried by certain members of the tribe of Levi, and they couldn't touch it. They had to slide gold-covered poles through rings that were on the side of the ark and then pick it up and pack it on their shoulders like that. They couldn't touch it. Remember what happened to Oza. When King David was having the ark moved up to Jerusalem, they put it on a cart, but it looked like it was going to slip off and fall on the ground. So Oza reached out to touch it and steady it, and as soon as he touched it, he was struck dead right then and there. When God says, don't touch something, he means it. He's God. The sacred vessels used for holding sacrificial blood in the worship of the Old Testament were also holy and not meant to be used for any profane thing. If you remember in the book of Daniel, how King Balthazar of Babylon was having this big party, he decided that all the vessels that they had looted when they had gone to Jerusalem and burnt down the temple, they looted the vessels and they brought it back. So he decided, bring them out for the party, and let's drink out of those vessels. No sooner did they do that, than all of a sudden you have that really terrifying apparition with a hand writing on the wall. Okay, everybody remembers that. And that very night, King Baltasar was killed and his kingdom was overthrown. When God says handle something reverently, he means it. We have to remember that every time man enters into a holy place, his accountability increases. Every infraction is strictly punished by God who is all holy. We have to be reverent. We owe that to God. We have to be reverent. We have to be careful not to get too casual with God, not to get too casual with holy things. God loves us, but we have to pay attention to what he says. We have to have that reverential fear of the Lord and not act like followers of Nimrod, like the men from Babel when we're in his presence. And that just doesn't apply to us that are up in the sanctuary. That applies to everyone here. And I hope you young people are listening. God means what he says. God dictated even how the smallest details of religious ceremonies were to be carried out. And he commanded that the entrance to the Holy of the Holies should be covered with a massive veil embroidered with the images of cherubim. Why was the Holy of Holies veiled? And why were there cherubim embroidered on the veil? Because the Holy of Holies is a symbolic garden of Eden, Mount Sinai, and heaven. How's that? 
Well, remember, because of the original sin, man's driven out of Eden, and Eden and heaven are both closed to him. The entrance to Eden is closed, it's covered, it's veiled, and man is no longer holy. The holy place where he once walked with God was veiled. He no longer had access to it. So how can it be symbolically the Garden of Eden? It's easy. The Holy of Holies is where the place where the Ark of the Covenant is placed, where the glory cloud of the Lord, the presence of God, would dwell over the mercy seat. And since man had been driven out from enjoying the privilege of living in intimate union with God, the Holy of Holies, which is the liturgical Garden of Eden, was veiled. It's closed to all men except for the high priest who could only enter on one day per year. Okay, so the Holy of Holies is covered. The entrance is covered with a massive veil. Why are there cherubim embroidered on the veil? Just as God placed cherubim at the entrance to the Garden of Eden to keep men out after the fall, so also the cherubim on the veil are symbolically guarding the way to the Holy of Holies, reminding everyone, even the priests, that there's no longer any access to the Holy of Holies to the intimate presence of God, except for the high priest once a year, and there was no longer any access at all to the inside of the ark, to the manna, the bread for heaven. These things had been veiled to mankind. But in spite of the fact the Holy Holies was closed to men, the priests, representing the Jewish people, performed rites that symbolized the service of their nation as a whole right there in front of the Holy of Holies, right there at the very threshold of the place where God was present. And it's not accidental that the word scripture uses to describe the duties of the priests and Levites as they work in and guard the sanctuary are exactly the same words that are used to describe Adam's duties of working and guarding the garden. Okay, so we can see how the Holy Holies represents Eden. What does it have to do with Mount Sinai? When Moses met face to face with God on top of Mount Sinai to receive the law, he did it in a thick cloud, which veiled the majesty of the Lord. And as we've seen, This cloudy veil protected Moses and made it possible for him to enter into God's presence without being killed. When God dictated to Moses the precise rubrics that the priest must use when approaching the Holy of Holies, he commanded the priest use a cloud of incense for protection. Why? Quote, that he may not die, close quote, Leviticus 16.13. Just as the cloud on Mount Sinai served as a veil and made it possible for Moses to be safe in God's presence, so also the cloud of incense used in the sanctuary protected the priests of the Old Covenant from the divine presence in the Holy of Holies. At Mount Sinai, the faithful couldn't see God giving the tablets to Moses. Rather, quote, all the people saw the voices and the flames and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, close quote, and quote, the sight of the glory of the Lord was like a burning fire on top of the mount in the eyes of the children of Israel, close quote. Similarly, the faithful going up to the temple in Old Testament times couldn't see the Ark of the Covenant because it was in the Holy of Holies and covered with the veil. They couldn't see the altar of incense because it stood in the holy place in front of the Holy of Holies. But just as they could see the smoke and the fire on Mount Sinai, so also they could see the smoke pour out from the top of the temple when the incense was offered, and they could see the altar burnt offerings, which stood immediately in front of the holy place in the courtyard of the temple. And on that altar, they could see the perpetual fire that had fallen down from heaven and that the priest had to keep burning on the altar Leviticus 6, quote, a perpetual fire should be kept burning on the altar not to go out, close quote. Perpetual heavenly fire ever visible to faithful. So now we've taken a brief look at worship in the tabernacle and the temple. Let's start tying all this together. We remember the Tower of Babel. At Babel, the unity of language of mankind was broken because of the desire of men to exalt their name. 
whereas on Pentecost, the unity of language is symbolically restored because of the desire of men to exalt the name of God. From the upper room on Mount Sion, the Holy Spirit began pouring out his rivers of the true flowing waters of grace to water the earth and glorify the name of the Lord. And immediately, representatives of the different nations began flowing into the unity of the one true church. And in contrast to Sinai, when Moses brought down the old law from Mount Sinai and the Levites took swords and slew thousands of sinners, St. Peter comes down from the upper room on Mount Sinai to bring the new law, to preach the gospel, the word of the Lord, and use the sword of the Spirit to slay the sins of 3,000 men on that first Pentecost. Remember the heavenly fire in the temple. That perpetual fire which fell from heaven upon the altar of burnt offerings was kept alive by the priests for generation after generation, foreshadowed the heavenly fire that fell on the Catholic Church on that first Pentecost. The fire that fell on the Blessed Virgin, Saints Peter and the Apostles, St. Mary Magdalene and the rest of the 120 in the upper room. A fire that fell on them as if they were each arcs of the covenant, a perpetual fire that shall never go out, the life and soul of the Catholic Church. And with the eyes of faith, that perpetual fire is ever visible to the faithful throughout New Testament times because it's been kept burning, never to be put out, in the hierarchy of the church, in the Holy Father and all his bishops. And the fire that fell in the upper room on Pentecost is the same fire that was first sparked in our souls at baptism, that grew with our first confession and first Holy Communion, our confirmation, and then for men in my state of life, it blazes to an ordination when a direct spiritual descendant of one of the apostles passes it on by laying on his hands. Just as Adam communed with God on top of the mountain and Garden of Eden, and just as Moses communed with God on top of Mount Sinai, and just as a high priest communed with God on top of Mount Moriah, and just as St. Peter communed with God on top of Mount Sion, so also in the mind of this church, this altar right here is a holy mountain. It's a holy mountain, which we can see by the prayers that we say at the beginning of Mass, the prayers at the foot of the altar, which contain phrases, the altar of God, thy holy mountain, thy tabernacle. And in the high Mass, we saw this morning, when the priest does go up to the holy mountain, does go up to the holy tabernacle, does go up to the altar, just like Moses going up on Mount Sinai, and just like the high priest going up to the holy holies on Mount Moriah, so also the priest is veiled by a cloud of incense. And just as the sanctuary of Eden or if the temple is the very threshold of heaven, where man came into communion with God, so also an altar is the very threshold of heaven, where the priest, by his strict obedience to the liturgical rubrics, not only visibly proclaims the holiness of God's name, but even brings God down into communion with man. Moses came down from the holy mountain with the word of God carved into stone tablets. The priest comes down from the holy mountain with the word of God made flesh. Remember how Mount Sinai was covered with a cloud and smoking and flames and whirlwinds and thunder and lightning and trumpet blasts. If all that was going on when Moses received the law from God, when God's word was written on stone tablets for men, just imagine with the eyes of faith what is going on on this altar right here. When the priest, at his command, the command of the priest, the word becomes really present. Body, blood, soul, and divinity in the most blessed sacrament of the altar. And then just as Moses came down from the mountain to teach people the word of God, just as St. Peter came down from the upper room on Mount Sinai to teach people the word of God, so also the priest comes down from the holy mountain and goes out to teach people the word of God, to use the sword of the Spirit to slay sin and glorify the name of the Lord. And what about degrees of holiness? In terms of space, they're easy to see since a church is actually a symbolic portrayal of creation. We could even see it in this situation. It's an architectural representation of 
of reality that's just tipped flat. See, there's three levels of reality. There's heaven, there's the earth, and there's the underworld, under the earth. So the sanctuary is architecturally heaven, the nave is architecturally earth, and the vestibule and things past that are architecturally the underworld. We can see physically displayed right here in the sanctuary, there's the Holy of Holies, and also symbolically heaven. So symbolically, the sanctuary is symbolically Eden, it's symbolically Sinai, the holy place, the Holy of Holies, and heaven. Notice to even come up here during liturgical ceremonies, we have to put on special clothing and act in very specific ritualistic ways because we're in the holiest place. And then, of course, the priest has on even more specialized vestments, all of which have been consecrated specifically to be used in the worship of God. They have special prayers that are said for each one of these vestments as you're putting them on. Each and every article has a prayer that you say as you're putting them on. And, of course, the priest has the most specifically ritualistic and complicated ways of acting up here. The priest's actions remind us that there's always a balance that we have to keep in mind when we approach God. On the one hand, we never want to forget that God loves us with an incredible, inexpressible, infinite love, a love that is so personal and so caring that he's literally numbered every single hair on our heads. And we're called to a personal, loving relationship with this infinite being that's God, this living God. So that's on the one hand. And we don't ever want to forget that. But on the other hand, we also have to keep in mind that God is almighty, that he's infinitely powerful, and he's pure, complete, and unutterable holiness, which means that as we approach him, we have to be ever more careful to watch our behavior and not cross any boundaries. We have to watch our behavior and not cross boundaries. It's fair to say that the liturgy directly forms our notion of the holiness of God. The liturgy directly forms our understanding of the holiness of God. That's one of the principal purposes of the liturgy in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It directly forms our understanding of the holiness and reverence due to the Almighty God. Think, look at Sinai, look at the tabernacle, look at the temple. If all those things were so holy, think of how much holier are our sacred vessels, which don't hold the blood of uh, bulls and lambs. They hold the precious blood of God himself. Think of how much holier are our holy of holies, our tabernacles, which hold the true manna from heaven, which hold not the word of God carved in stone, but the word made flesh who is dwelling among us and who has veiled himself under the appearance of bread. And now, because of the new covenant, the priest can go behind the veil into the Holy of Holies every day. The priest can give us the fruit of the tree of life. He can open the ark, the ciborium. And because he can do that, we can receive this heavenly bread every day. Only now, it's not a shadow of things to come. It's God himself. Just look at how the men who work closest to God spend years, seven years in my case, going through a whole series of consecrations, being set ever farther apart from the rest of you, giving up all kinds of natural good things in pursuit of holiness. And all this is done precisely so that we can work safely up here. We can safely take your pleas to God and bring his message to you so we can act in the person of Christ and not be a scandal and a stumbling block to all y'all. Always remember that a Catholic church is a holy place and everything about it has to speak and teach holiness. It's the house of God and the gate of heaven. 
We started by asking how Pentecost reveals to us that the foundations for the gospel were the sacred rites of the Old Testament. We've seen that, and now we can understand what St. Paul is referring to when he says to each of his Catholics, You have not come to a mountain that might be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom, and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet, a sight so terrifying that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to a judge who is God of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire. St. Francis of Assisi said, Men should tremble, the world should quake, all heaven should be deeply moved when the Son of God appears on the altar in the hands of the priest. Prepare yourself.